Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Of the thousands of criminal cases that Vance was involved with over his four-decade-long career, the most frustrating must have been the two unsolved murders he worked on. Both involved young women and occurred during the Second World War. The first one happened just outside Victoria in 1943. Victoria was experiencing the coldest weather in more than 30 years. On Monday, January 18th, the temperature plunged to 10 below and snow was more than 7 inches deep in parts. Anita Margaret Clive Justice, known as Molly to her friends and family, was only 15, but she was already head seamstress at General Warehouse, a garment factory on Government Street, and this would be next to where Munro's Books is today. On that Monday evening, Molly caught the 5.50 bus as she always did, and it was just after 6pm when she disembarked near her Saanich home. The distance from the bus stop to her home going along the tracks shaved off almost half a kilometre in her walk home. Because wartime dim-out regulations were in force, there was no lighting along the streets, and that may have made taking the unlit shortcut along Swan Lake less scary Bus driver Luther Whitaker knew Molly by sight and noticed that she was wearing a plaid coat and carrying two parcels. At around 6.30, just a half an hour after Molly got off the bus, two girls were walking along the CNR right-of-way at the intersection of Darwin Avenue and noticed two parcels in the snow. They thought it was odd, but kept on walking. A few hours later, James Logie, a Saanich firefighter, and his wife Marie were walking home after watching the ice skaters on Swan Lake when they saw the two parcels lying in the snow. The Logies picked them up and took them home. When the couple looked at them in the light, they were shocked to find both parcels drenched in blood. James Logie phoned police. Sergeant Eric Owl of the Saanich Police received a call from Logie at around 9.30pm. He arranged to meet him at Darwin Avenue, where the firefighter had found the parcels. They searched the area and found Molly lying face down an embankment near the track. Her coat and skirt had been pulled up above her head. At the inquest, Sergeant Elwood testified that the snow was three inches deep and that it wasn't until the following day around noon when the snow started to melt and the blood started to show through that they were able to form some idea of what had taken place. Police found signs of a scuffle in three places along the track. The 15-year-old girl was still dressed in the clothes she wore to work, a black dress, brown sweater, green plaid coat and rubber boots. One of the parcels had the shoes she wore at work, the other a white sweater that she'd bought for her brother. Molly had been stabbed more than 20 times and hit twice on the head with a blunt object. She had a blackened right eye, a lacerated scalp, and there were wounds on her face, throat, the backs of her hands and on her legs. The wounds were almost all to the right side of the body 
indicating that her killer was left-handed. Police found human hair under the fingernails of both her hands. Mercifully, she had not been raped. Chief Joshua Bull of the five-man Saanich Police headed the investigation. The police department was understaffed because of the war and had little training, equipment or experience investigating major crime. Basically, there were farm boys who'd been given a gun. Bull had to borrow a camera to take a picture of the crime scene and then waited for the snow to melt to search for more clues. The few people who lived near the crime scene were canvassed, but no one had seen or heard anything, and no one had seen Molly after she got off the bus. Although there were no sign of Molly's purse, the four dollars that she had on her that morning, or a silver ring with a blue stone that she always wore, Chief Bull discounted robbery as a motive. After viewing the crime scene, the chief believed that Molly's murderer knew what time she came home every evening and had targeted her. They began checking the whereabouts of family members and friends. Molly's father had died eight years before and her mother Muriel, a hairdresser, lived in the Brett Avenue house with Molly and her older brother Robin and her fiancé Diasi Martin, a 53-year-old government lawyer, and his 21-year-old son Walter. Walter's mother, Cecilia Martin, had committed suicide the year before. It was D'Arcy Martin who identified Molly's body. Bull realised he was seriously out of his depth and phoned the Vancouver Police Department and put in a request for the services of Inspector Vance. Police heard rumours suggesting that Molly had been murdered at her house and her body and the parcels dumped where they were found. Police searched the justice house, and when Inspector Vance arrived three days later, he went back and took hair samples from all the occupants. Vance couldn't find any that matched the hair found under Molly's fingernails. The inquest was held the following week. When police found three women for the jury, they were rejected because a Coroner's Act called for only male British citizens over the age of 21. Three suitable males were quickly found from the 60 spectators. Dr John Moore, the pathologist, spent several minutes detailing the damage that had been done to Molly. He gave the cause of death as hemorrhage. The cold spell and snowy conditions had blotted out footprints and seriously hampered the investigation. By early February, all the bushes near the crime scene had been cut down and every inch of the ground raked in an effort to find the murder weapon or any other evidence that could lead them to the killer. The search had broadened to an area of more than 50 acres, and soldiers and city employees helped with the search. It wasn't until February the 4th, more than two weeks after the murder, that police got their first clue. Sergeant Alwell found Molly's purse and a cigarette case with the initials RL underneath an upturned bucket at the edge of a garbage dump near Swan Lake. These were sent to Inspector Vance in Vancouver. Later, when the snow melted, police found a pair of men's gloves in the area. The police investigation found that there were 96 sales of these same lined leather gloves between October and December of 1942. After a week and 1,700 interviews, they'd managed to track down 30 of the glove sales. On February 14th, the Daily Colonist ran a picture of the gloves, but in the end, 
Neither the gloves or the cigarette case with the initials RL were linked to Molly's murder. Five months passed with no new leads. Then on May 16th, they had an unfortunate break in the case. An 11-year-old girl named Joan was playing near her house at Swan Lake when she was approached by an older boy, dragged into the bushes and raped with a knife at her throat. 15-year-old Frank Hulbert said if she told anyone, he would murder her as he had murdered Molly Justice. The attack took place very close to where Molly's purse and cigarette case were found and near where Frank Hulbert was living at his sister's house. Hulbert even pointed the house out to the girl, who fortunately managed to escape and ran to a nearby house for help. She was able to show police the house and eventually identified Frank from a photograph. And then things got really weird. Frank Holbert worked at the British American Paint Company plant on Belleville Street in Victoria. He told police that his co-worker, 49-year-old William Mitchell, told him that he had killed Molly with a pocket knife and a rock. Holbert told police that he'd seen Mitchell with his penknife at work that day, and Mitchell told him that he'd gone home after the murder to wash it. Holbert told police that Mitchell had indecently assaulted him. And even more bizarre... Police believed it all. Frank Holbert was clearly a psychologically disturbed teenager with a grade 4 education who exhibited severe behavioural problems. The boy's explanation of his movements the night of January 8th was sketchy at best. He told police he'd caught the bus home after work. His mother, Mary Jane, said Frank had arrived home between 6.30 and 7 and, as far as she could remember, stayed home all night. The two girls said they'd walked past the parcels at 6.30. If that was accurate, then Frank had time to murder Molly and then return home. On June 3rd, 1943, Frank Holbert was convicted of indecent assault on young Joan and sent to the Boys Industrial School in Coquitlam on the mainland. Later that month, Mitchell was arrested for sexual assault of Holbert and police obtained a search warrant for his room in Victoria where they found a small pocket knife that appeared to have traces of human blood. Unbelievably, Mitchell was charged with the first-degree murder of Molly Justice and the sexual assault charge was withdrawn. But there was an explanation for everything. As Mitchell's landlord explained, Mitchell couldn't have gone home to wash his knife that night because the pipes had frozen in the apartment building and there was no running water. Lewis Kamen, who worked with Mitchell and Halbert at the paint factory, said that Mitchell didn't leave work early that afternoon, as Halbert had testified, but he was still there at 5.15pm, and that Mitchell was wearing the same work clothes the next day, and they had no signs of blood. The first aid attendant at the paint plant said that Mitchell had cut his finger on the pocket knife he used at work, and he had bandaged him up. That explained the blood found on his knife. And even though the only evidence that was left was Holbert's less incredible testimony, Mitchell's case was sent to trial, where a murder conviction came with a death penalty. Over the years, much has been made that while samples of hair found under Molly's fingernails were used to exclude her family as suspects, why wasn't the same done to Mitchell or Frank Holbert? I asked Douglas Lucas former director of the Centre for Forensic Science in Ontario about this. 
He says because hair changes over time, it needs to be collected from the suspect's head almost immediately to be of any use when it's compared to the hair found on the victim. In this case, Mitchell and Hulbert didn't come on the police radar until nearly five months after Molly's murder. But it does make me wonder about Molly's immediate family and the Diasi Martins, whether three days may have been too long to conclusively say that the hair found on Molly's body did not belong to any of them. In August 1943, less than two months after being committed to the industrial school for boys for raping 11-year-old Joan, Frank Holbert was charged with three counts of sexual assault against young boys and transferred to Ocala Prison Farm. He was brought back to Victoria to give evidence at Mitchell's trial that went ahead despite the complete lack of evidence. Mitchell took the stand in his own defence and flatly denied murdering Molly Justice. He told the court that he'd never heard of her before, had never been to Saanich, was Métis and had been a police officer in Quebec and spent three years with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Regina and Brandon, Manitoba. His marriage had fallen apart and he moved to British Columbia in 1932 and worked mostly as a logger. He was stationed for a time at Trial Island Lighthouse before working in a box factory and later the paint plant. Asked about the knife, he said that he'd bought it five years before from a mail order house and used it for work. On the night Molly was murdered, he had left the knife in his overalls at the paint plant. The judge was completely unimpressed by the Crown's chief witness, 15-year-old Frank Holbert. The judge told the jury that, in his opinion, was highly unlikely that a mature man such as Mitchell and a former police officer, even if he was guilty, would confide in a boy of 15. The jury also believed Mitchell and he was acquitted. The following year, he took the Victoria Daily Times newspaper to court for libel and won $1,000 in damages. Another part of this really strange case was Hulbert's connection to Eric Pepler, the Deputy Attorney General. Frank Holbert was actually born Frank Pepler. His father, John Thomas Pepler, died when he was three, and he was adopted by his stepfather, Kressler Holbert, and he took his name. He was known as Frank Pepler in the police records, and both names were used almost interchangeably in the media of the day. The boy told police that Eric Pepler was his uncle. Eric Pepler denied the relationship, but he did write to his boss, the Attorney General, saying that he didn't want to prosecute the Molly Justice case for various reasons that he didn't want to mention. Whether he wanted to recuse himself because he was somehow related to Frank Holbert or just because of the perception that he may have been is unknown. Interviewed over 50 years later, Pepler's daughter Anna Wooten said she'd never heard of John Thomas Pepler or his son Frank Pepler. Lewis Kamen, Hulbert and Mitchell's co-worker at the paint factory, always believed Frank Hulbert was guilty of Molly's murder. He said Hulbert was always getting into fights at the paint factory and he would chase people with his knife and do other strange things to attract attention. By 1948, Kamen was a constable with the Victoria Police Department. He was working one night when Hulbert was brought in. He said to the now 20-year-old, so they finally nailed you for the murder of Molly Justice. Hulbert, he said, replied, Sure, I killed her. You prove it. Cayman passed this along to the desk sergeant, 
but he heard nothing more until the case was reopened almost 20 years later. That confession was one of several Holbert supposedly made over the years, yet he was never charged in her murder. When Holbert was taken from Victoria back to Ocala Prison following Mitchell's trial, he told the two police officers who were with him that he'd killed Molly Justice when he was in what he called a passionate fog. He said he couldn't remember what knife he used, likely his favourite hunting knife. He told the police officers if they tried to use it against him, he'd deny it, and they couldn't prove it anyway. In one of the officers' reports, he mentions that when they returned to Vancouver Island, they met with Sergeant Elwell and passed along what Holbert had told them, and that they believed him for being responsible for Molly's murder. Sergeant Elwell said that he was also of the same opinion and that Holbert had told him the same story, and he said to the officers, but what can we do about it? Sergeant Elwell arranged to have Frank Holbert seen by a psychiatrist at the Hollywood Sanatorium in New Westminster. The doctor reported back that Holbert was of dull, normal intelligence, was a pathological liar, and it was his opinion that he was making the whole story up. Another 20 years went by, and then in April 1967, police received an anonymous letter about Molly's murder that contained information they thought only the killer would know. The letter provided a reason for Saanich police to reopen the investigation. Detective Sergeant Robin Stewart had joined the department in 1950 and was already familiar with the file. Stewart thought the Attorney General's department had interfered with the case because of Eric Pepler's relationship with Frank Holbert, although he was never able to establish a legal link between the two men, and Pepler had died in 1957, almost a decade earlier. Stewart believed that those heading the Saanich police force at the time of William Mitchell's trial were fully aware that he was innocent and that Frank Holbert should have been on trial for Molly's murder. He made it known that he also believed that Frank Holbert was responsible for the unsolved murder of Mythanwy Sanders, a 16-year-old who was suffocated to death in October 1945 and found in a Saanich field near her home. Yet as close as these two murders seemed to be in age, opportunity and geography, I couldn't find any link to them in any police investigation in the 1940s. Most frustrating is it appears that Frank Holbert had been released from prison in July of 1945, just three months before the second murder. But Stewart failed to convince the Crown prosecutor to put Frank Holbert, now 40 years old, on trial. The prosecution felt too much time had gone by, that there wasn't any hard new evidence, that Frank Holbert was a confirmed liar, and they would have little chance of a conviction. Instead, the prosecution thought a perjury charge may have more success, and at least put Holbert back in jail. On October 28, 1967, Frank Holbert was arrested at the converted bus where he lived in Port Alberni, and he was charged and convicted of perjury in William Mitchell's trial 24 years earlier. He received five years in BC Penitentiary. For the next 28 years, Molly's case file sat in a couple of cardboard boxes that contained the witness statements, notebooks, an unidentified knife, 
three leather gloves and other bits of evidence in a locked storage room at the Saanich police station. Then, in 1996, Molly's sister-in-law Marjorie Justice saw a newspaper article about the newly formed Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit. The article didn't mention Molly Justice, and Marjorie was concerned that they'd closed the file. She phoned Inspector Al Hickman of the Saanich Police. It was enough to prompt Hickman to take another look. Frank Hulbert had died less than a month before, but Hickman found the case file and was shocked to see the amount of evidence that they had against him. Hickman was convinced that Frank Hulbert had murdered Molly Justice in 1943 and thought that it was a bad decision not to charge him with murder in 1967 instead of the much lesser offence of perjury. The media reports raised questions about the murder investigation, and in July 1996, Attorney General Dosange asked former BC Court of Appeal Justice Martin Taylor to investigate and report on whether Frank Holbert should have been charged with the murder of Molly Justice and whether Deputy Attorney General Eric Pepler, who served between 1934 and 1954, covered up evidence on his behalf. Taylor found no conclusive evidence that Pepler was related to Holbert or that he interfered in the case. Taylor concluded that Saanich police made an honest error of judgment in proceeding against William Mitchell in the initial investigation. He wrote, This small wartime police force, largely untrained and ill-equipped, found itself seriously out of depth in a difficult murder investigation conducted under intense public and media attention. It may have far too readily accepted a false story, which seemed to provide a solution to the case. Molly's murder is one of the oldest cold cases on Vancouver Island, and her case seems destined to remain officially open, partially solved, and perhaps permanently sealed. Did Frank Holbert murder Molly Justice? Quite possibly. The evidence certainly seems to point that way, down to the fact that he was left-handed like the killer. But it's also possible that this seriously botched murder investigation allowed a killer to go free. As Taylor points out in his report, he's unable to say for sure. As a youth, Holbert served serious jail time in Ocala Adult Prison for his sex crimes against young boys and girls. And a letter to his supposed uncle, the Attorney General, Eric Pepler, asking for release, was denied. Much of the information he gave to police about the murder was printed in the newspapers of the day and it was well known that he was a seriously disturbed, pathological liar who liked to seek attention. Any forensic evidence that could have helped the investigation was lost years ago. All the witnesses, original investigators, suspects and family members are dead. When I was in Victoria this spring on a book tour, I met up with my friend Graham Walker. Graham is now a constable with the Saanich Police Department and the building that they're in was built in the 1960s, ironically right next to Molly Justice's murder scene. Not surprisingly, Graham wasn't aware of this 76-year-old murder, but he was fascinated and he started to do his own research. I had never heard of this case until you brought it to my attention, so obviously as I was intrigued, it combines the 
place that I work with my interest in, in historical crime. And what, of course, was particularly interesting was that it happened right beside where our police station is now. In fact, it's the crossing of the railway tracks, which is now the trail, is a main access for us to our police station. I use it all the time to get to and from the office while I'm working in my police car. So I end up driving past the scene multiple times per shift. Since it's been so long, very few of my co-workers knew about it, even those who had been there a while. When you looked into the case, Graham, what were your thoughts about how police investigated this murder? It highlights some pitfalls of the system at the time, the, the appearances of conflict of interest versus, you know, perceived versus real. And now the evidence is gone. You and I both know where they take things home, the police officers, or, you know, a lot of their work was done at home. And whether they took it home to work on it or whether they took it home after they thought the file was concluded and they wanted a memento, there was all kinds of things that just, or, or even it was just discarded at the police station because uh, it wasn't properly labeled or somebody thought that the, uh, it was no longer needed. All that management wasn't as strict as it is now. What's the state of Molly's case now? Is there a chance it'll be reopened? So with a file this old, it would take some time to invest. still is open, but for a detective to go away from a case that's currently, you know, currently happening now, that could actually lead to charges and, and, and devote all these hours to something that happened over 75 years ago, you know, it would, it would take some uh, called investment and some time set aside to, to fully review this file again. It would be nice to have that closure, even though people involved are deceased, it still resonates, I think. There's people around who remember the incident, and I'm sure all of those people involved, whether it's descendants or people who live nearby, would want to hear that uh, it was certain who did it, at least, even if they can't be charged. Thanks again for listening. For more information and photos, visit my website at evelazarus.com. 